Amen. Well, I want to start this morning by calling your attention to something that I think is so obvious I won't need to prove it to you, and that is that the world out there, outside of Christ, is characterized by deep and pervasive selfishness. Deep and pervasive selfishness. And I really don't think I have to prove it. Let me give you a few examples, though, that have been in my mind just to illustrate the point. You know when you walk through a grocery store and you get to the checkout aisle and there are those magazines there? If you would humor me and grant that those magazines indicate the kinds of things that people are interested in, let me ask you this question. When was the last time you walked into your local Stater Brothers and you saw a magazine and the big headline was Five Ways to Be a More Selfless Person? Have you ever seen that? I've never seen that. You know what you do see? Five ways to get the body you've always wanted this summer. Or five juicy details from Hollywood. So the, the people who make those magazines, they know that you will give them your hard-earned money if they help you do one thing. Be more selfish. Be the kind of person that you want to be. Realize the kind of internal dreams that you want to realize. Or just give you kind of fodder to feed your selfish desires to know about other people's lives. People are selfish. Another example, I was talking to a college student recently at our church, and he's, um, he's at a university that's very secular and very dark, and within that, he's in a program that's, that's incredibly dark, and, and he, he wants to be a firefighter after he finishes school, and he, he was saying to me, he's been telling peers and professors that he wants to be a firefighter, and they're actually pushing back and asking him, why on earth would you want to do something where every day you're just helping other people? I, he told me this, and I just thought, are you, what? Are you kidding me? But he said that peers and professors alike are questioning him. Why would you want to do that with your life? Why would you want to do something that every day requires you to be so selfless? So the world out there is characterized by deep and pervasive selfishness. And this is why the church sticks out like a sore thumb if we live as the kind of people we're called to live as. People characterized by love. And if you just flip through the New Testament in your mind, you can think about sections, Philippians 2, uh, that calls us to, to treat other people as more valuable than ourselves, or 1 Corinthians 13, that great section that talks about all the ways that love should be characterized, or 1 John 3, love one another, for, for you are born of your Father, and He is the Father of love, or maybe most of all, John 13, Jesus says to His, his disciples in verse 35, and many of us know this verse, this is how the world will know that you're my disciples that you love one another. So this church, Taft Avenue, the church that I'm coming from, Grace Church of Orange, we have an opportunity to put Jesus on display to the world by our love for each other. But here's the problem. That selfishness out there also lives in here. Right? I don't need to convince you of that either. You know your own heart. And even as you can think of New Testament passages that, that tell us, yes, we are called to be the community of love, you can also think of uglier realities. Headlines of pastors who've abused authority within the church, or maybe you can think of a history of church divisions or splits or rifts, or you can think of beef. Can I use that word? Beef that exists between two people in the church. The kind of thing that would make Paul write, I entreat Yodia and Syntyche, agree, agree in the Lord. Agree in the Lord. We can think of situations like these, and so we need help. 
Because even though there's this great vision given to us in the New Testament, you're the people of God. You're supposed to be characterized by love. We know that it's hard. And so we need to go back to the New Testament time and time again to, to say, how does this work? How can I grow in love? How can we, as the people of God, be characterized by this kind of love? And this passage in 1 Peter that we're looking at this morning, it, it, held, it holds out help to us. It, Peter tells us how the mechanics of this kind of love work. And he gives us the context that's necessary to realize and grow in this kind of love that should characterize believers. So here's what I want to do with you this morning. Um, I want to try to, to unlock what Peter's saying by asking two questions. And the questions are these. Where does love come from? And then how can I grow in love? That's an outline for this morning. If you're writing in your bulletin, I think when I gave the Taft group the, the notes, uh, there's three points. This, your second point was cannibalized by the first point, okay? So just two points now. Uh, where does love come from? How can I grow in love? And I'm going to give you the answer right at the beginning. I know that's not very exciting. But if you wanted to just think of one thing to pull from the passage this morning, it would be this. Love is rooted in our new birth in Christ, and it flourishes as we taste his goodness in the word of God. Love is rooted in our new birth in Christ, and it flourishes as we taste his goodness in the word of God. Roadmap sound okay? With me? Good? Okay. Okay, good. Well, let's get into this, and we're going to ask this first question. Where does love come from? Where does this kind of love that we're called to, to uh, have as believers, where does it come from? How can I get this? How can I see this come to fruition in my life? And the answer, and this is coming to us in the first several verses through the end of chapter one, the answer is that love is rooted in our new birth in Christ. Love is rooted in our new birth in Christ. And I want to show you just how critical this is. If we miss this, all of our attempts to be a community characterized by love, they're going to fall apart like a house of cards. Love is rooted in our new birth in Christ. So look at the passage with me and look at verse 22. I want to show you the call that Peter gives to the church. And it's located right after the first phrase. So I'll read from verse 22. He says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, here's the command. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And then he says, Since you have been born again. Here's the crucial thing to note. Peter gives us an Oreo as he gives us this command to love. Anybody an Oreo fan in the room? Just me? There was a debate raging in my house recently about whether Oreos are better or whether the Trader Joe's knockoffs are better. I, I actually think the Trader Joe's knockoffs are better. So if, if that makes you want to not, not listen to the rest of the sermon, please just uh, forgive me and get past it, okay? But, but he gives us an Oreo. Truth on either side that gives context to this command. And the truths are really two ways of saying the same thing. Let me read for you. Verse 22. The first, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, and then you can think of a parenthesis, now the command is coming. And then on the other side of the command, he says in verse 23, since you have been born again. And both of these, I, both of these kind of, you, the, the two sides of the Oreo sandwich, what they're saying to us is that there is a context for the command to love. And the context is that we share in this amazing, otherworldly, incredibly powerful new birth in Christ. 
Let's just think about these for a moment, and then we'll talk about how he states the command. But first he says that you're the people who have purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. And what he's getting at here is not to say that you've gone through some kind of process of purification through your obedience. Instead, Peter, he's writing mostly to a Jewish audience, and he's, he's knowing that they have in the back of their mind the system of purification that would be required before you enter into the holy uh, place, into the temple to worship God. He uses that kind of a word, and he wants to tell them, through your obedience to the truth, and, and that you could think of as shorthand for, through your adherence to, or your response to, or your submission to the message of the gospel, the truth of the gospel, your souls have been purified. In other words, you're not in the Jewish community anymore. You don't need to go and wash hands or prepare in certain ways. No, it's not what's outside of you that's been purified. Your own soul has actually been purified by your obedience to the truth, by your submission to the word of the gospel. Something has changed inside of you. You're pure from the inside out. This is who you are. And the point of this purification, he says, is that you would, you would have sincere brotherly love so i don't maybe it was just me but i don't know if anybody else remembers reading uh, at some point in high school or something the book the scarlet letter by nathaniel hawthorne if that means anything to you it's just it's this book about this kind of caricaturized puritan type town and someone sins in the town and everybody basically just blacklists this poor woman um, and she's forced to wear a scarlet letter indicating to everybody that she's an adulterer and i think that when the world thinks about purity that's often the vision they see, kind of this hyper-religious, hyper-legalistic kind of detachment from anything that's considered unclean. But Peter actually says, the person whose soul has been purified has been purified for a purpose, and the purpose is love. Your soul's been purified for a sincere brotherly love. This is who you are. That's kind of the human side of looking at the equation. But then on the other side, the bottom half of the Oreo sandwich, he just says, since you've been born again. Since you've been born again. And we'll think about how powerful this new birth is in just a second. But, but again, the context that he's supplying for the command to love is that you've entered into new life. You've actually been born all over again through faith in Christ. You're not the same person that you used to be. There's attitudes, there's actions, there's characteristics that characterize the old person that's not who you are anymore. You have been born again. The, the transformation is so radical that the right language to speak about it is that you have been born all over again. You've come into the world anew. Jesus talked to Nicodemus, right, in John chapter 3, and Nicodemus was confused. I, I don't understand. Can somebody pass into their mother's womb and be born again? Jesus says, no, you're missing the point. The point is that to come to me, to align yourself with my life, to trust in me, it, it brings you to a point of such radical transformation as my grace overflows in your heart that it would be accurate to say you are a totally new person. And so even though my name is still Connor, I still have brown hair and brown eyes and I'm still 5'10", uh, when I came to Christ, now I wasn't 5'10 when I came to Christ, I was a little guy, but uh, when I came to him, all of those external things remain the same and yet it would be accurate to say, I'm a new person, and that's true of you too, if you're in Christ and you trust in him. And it's in that context that Peter then can give the command, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So this would be a crucial thing for us to understand this morning. 
The call to love in the New Testament is never a call to try to do something that is against your deepest inclinations, the nature of who you are. It's actually the opposite. It starts with the new birth, and then out of new birth flows a desire to love because you're living in line with who you really are. Just a few comments about how, how Peter describes this kind of love, because this, I think, becomes very challenging for us in a practical way. He says, love one another earnestly and from a pure heart. Love one another earnestly and from a pure heart. And just, uh, just quick thoughts about each of those. First, the idea of earnest love. This word is actually used only three times in the New Testament. Once here, and then in the two other instances, it's used when the church is, is giving earnest prayer for Peter as he's in prison. That's in Acts uh, chapter 12, I believe. Uh, and then the other, and this is where it really sharpens the knife a little bit, the other is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And as Luke describes drops of blood falling from his brow, it says that he's praying earnestly the same word. And so this doesn't, it's not to say that our love is going to be characterized by the same kind of intensity that Jesus was gripped by in the garden, but it shows us how powerful this word can be. Earnest love, passionate love, committed love. And this challenges how we often think about love. Maybe it's just me, I don't know about you, but I know for me a lot of times love can almost be the kind of things that I don't do. It's just kind of, it's being a generally nice person or trying to as I'm reacting to what's coming my way. That's not what Peter's talking about here. It's incredibly active. It's thinking, how can I best leverage my life to bless the people around me? Not a passive kind of a thing. Not just, oh, I didn't, you know, I didn't honk at that person on the freeway when they cut me off, although that's good too, don't do that. Uh, no, active and incredibly earnest. An earnest love. And then he says a pure-hearted love. And this, again, it challenges our ideas because he, he's pointing out that the church is to be characterized by a love that isn't external. It's not just something that I do. It flows from a pure heart. And here again, we start to see just how much we need Jesus and his transforming grace. None of us on our own, you know, gumption can purify our hearts. None of us can choose to love with a love that's pure. I know you know this. If, you are, if you're willing to be honest with yourself, all of our greatest acts of love and sacrifice outside of Christ, they're still, they're still tainted by this selfish impulse. They flow from a heart that says, I can, I can sacrifice in this way. Or maybe there's still some kind of a self-interest attached to whatever that kind thing is that you're doing. But no, Peter says, if you want to really have the kind of love that Jesus is calling you to, it has to be pure-hearted. And there's only one who can purify what's inside of us, and it's Jesus. So this is the kind of love that we're called to, and it, it flows from our new birth in Christ. A few points of application before we move on to see what's next. Uh, a, a first point would just be this. Take the temperature on your love. How's, how are you doing? Is it earnest? Is it pure-hearted? Or are you pretty content to kind of just stay in your lane and, uh, you know, try to be a nice person when something comes along that you weren't expecting? If that's what we think of as love, then we're falling so far short of the New Testament. So this would be a good chance this morning to just take the temperature. How am I doing? What is the love in my life looking like? But another point of application, this one, it gets a little bit more pointed. I want you to do something right now. And before I even tell you, I need to encourage you, please don't be glancing around. But think of the person in the church who is most challenging for you to get along. Please don't look, okay? 
This is not the time to be peering around, oh, yeah, oh, that, that's the one. Uh, but think about that person or persons, okay? Somebody who naturally, it's, it's just some, somebody that you don't click with. Maybe, you know, you think the shoes they wear are dorky, or I, I don't know what it is. I'm just kidding. I'm sure it's probably more serious. Maybe there's real harm that's been done. The way they treat you or have treated you in the past, it's rubbed you the wrong way. It's gotten under your feathers. Think of that person. How would what we're talking about here inform the way that you would treat that person? And really what I'm saying is this. If you've been born again by Jesus' powerful work in your heart, and they've been born again by the same powerful work in their heart, can you still hold them at arm's length? Can you still say, no, I'm going to harbor some kind of bitterness towards that person? If everything that you have in life is from the grace of God, and everything that they have is from the grace of God, and you share in this new life together, to choose to not love, to choose to hold on to bitterness, is to live against who you really are now in Christ. It defeats the purposes for which Christ died. We cannot, we cannot choose that path. It's not who we are anymore. Just last week, I was driving to a meeting at church, and I'm just showing you how this practically played out. Uh, I was driving to a meeting at church. I've been thinking about this passage because I knew I was going to be preaching it here this morning, and there was somebody I knew I was going to be seeing who I just felt I was frustrated with, and as I was driving to church, I could tell there was something in my heart that wasn't right, and I just started to pray, and I, I was just saying, God, I, I am a huge sinner, and you've saved me by grace. I'm a new creation now in Christ. I've been born again. I know that this is true of that person too. I have no right anymore to hold anything against them, nor do I want to. And as I was praying in the car and approaching there, God started to change my heart. And I said, man, that's a person who's in Christ with me. I love them. I know they love me. I know that Jesus loves both of us. And God was able to work on that ugly bitterness in my heart just through this context. I've been born again. They've been born again. We share in this new life together. I can't hold anything against them, nor would I want to. But let's keep looking. Let's keep looking, because as Peter goes forward, he, he wants to show us, really, not just that we've been born again, but to show us the power of this new birth, to further drive home just what a dramatic change has, has happened inside of you if you're somebody who trusts in Christ. We've seen that the context for, for love is, is the, uh, the new birth, but now he wants to say, where did the new birth come from? How does that happen? And he just wants to point out to us that it is permanent and that's inc incredibly powerful. So look at verse 23. He says, since you've been born again, and now he starts to describe the way that this new birth has happened. Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So we are on the same page that love flows from and is rooted in the new birth. But now we want to think about this new birth and just see how Peter shows us its power. And he tells us that it's permanent and that it is incredibly powerful. He says, first of all, he uses the analogy of a seed to describe what's, what's happened to us. You've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. 
not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. And we can picture what he's saying. And the reason he says that, that it's not perishable, but imperishable, is that he wants to communicate something eternal has happened in us. Something that will never change has happened. And it's actually, not to be too uh, uh, detailed on this, but it's actually the language of fatherhood. Uh, when, a, when somebody is, you know, having a son or a daughter, the father actually passes, you could say, you know, real, like genetic material into that person to make this new life. And that's the picture that Peter's drawing on here. He says, obviously, conceptually, not literally, but he says that God has planted in you new seed, eternal seed, enduring, that will never perish. And out of that, new life has blossomed. That's happened in you if you're in Christ. That's happened in you, and it will never change. This is not just some, you know, oh, I, I chose to be a Christian one day because I was at a meeting, and now this is kind of a, a little bit of an add-on to my life. No, this is something that will endure, not just through this life, but forever. An imperishable seed leads to an imperishable result, a changed life that will endure into eternity. And the power of this has come through the word of God. He says, you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. And now he starts to quote from Isaiah chapter 40. And he, he quotes Isaiah who gives us this great picture uh, that illustrates the power of God's word. He says, all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Again, he's highlighting just how powerful the word of God is, which has led to our new birth. Yesterday, I was driving out on the 15 freeway towards um, Temecula or Lake Elsinore area. And as we were driving along, I don't know if anyone's seen this, but there were these amazing fields of poppies, um, these bright orange poppies just covering the hillsides. It must have been thousands, if not millions, of these little orange flowers. And it was breathtaking, so pretty. It's, I mean, I feel like we're living in Seattle. I think all this rain has just uh, has done it, you know. But just these amazing fields of flowers. And, and you could picture that as kind of an image of what Isaiah is talking about. He talks about flesh or humanity being like fields of grass or even flowers of grass. He says all of humanity is like a big field of grass. All of the glory of humanity, all of the best of what we have to offer is like the flowers of the grass. And Isaiah is exactly right. It's here today, it's gone tomorrow. The grass withers and the flower falls. In a month or two months, all those poppies are going to be gone. And Isaiah says, all of the power in this world, it's like that. So think about the greatest glory that the flesh could offer. The greatest leaders, people like Winston Churchill, Napoleon, Alexander the Great, Nero, the people that Peter was writing to could have related to this. Uh, all of their glory, it's like grass that's passing away. Its influence is so fleeting. The greatest empires, Babylon and Greece and Rome and England and America, we have so much power. No, we don't. We're like the grass that's here today and it's gone tomorrow. The greatest institutions, Harvard and Princeton, Apple and Google, everything that the world has to offer and says that's so powerful. Peter says all of that is nothing, less than nothing compared to the power of what you've been changed by if you're in Christ. And that power is the word of God. He says at the end of verse 25, this word is the good news that has been preached to you. This word is the good news that has been preached to you. In other words, yes, in a sense, we could say that all of this book, 
the 66 books of God's word, inspired and given to us by God. They're perfect, and they'll endure forever, and, and, and they are all powerful, powerful to change lives. But it's particularly the message of Jesus that changes lives, right? It's the message that there was a man, a Galilean peasant, who was the son of God, fully God, fully man, who lived on earth, died on a cross, was buried, and rose again. Rose again as the king of the universe, and everybody who comes to him and has faith and gives their life to him, receives full forgiveness for sins, enters into real fellowship with God through Jesus because they've been united with this man. This is the good news that was preached to you, Peter says, and it is the instrument by which you've been born again. So again, a few points of application before we move on to our next question this morning. Uh, First would just be this. Have you experienced new birth? in response to the message of Jesus. I don't want to take for granted that everybody sitting here has been born again. In fact, in a room of this size, I'm almost sure that there are some who haven't. Is the, and you could think of this particularly if you came to Christ later in life, or at least you think you did. Is the change in your life because of the work of Jesus in his life, is it so dramatic, or has it been, that it would be right to say that person has been born again? You could ask somebody around you, if you're new and someone just dragged you to church this morning, you could ask somebody around you, especially a Christian who came to know Jesus later in life, hey, was it really like being born again? And if they're really in Christ, they would say, absolutely it was. Before I was just a slave to my own sin, I was selfish, I didn't want anything to do with God, but Jesus has changed everything. He's forgiven me of my sins and now I know God. I walk with him, my life is characterized by love and selflessness and sacrifice because I love Jesus. He's changed everything about me. Have you experienced that? One of the greatest evangelists who ever lived after the time of the New Testament, his name was George Whitfield, and he always preached the new birth. Everywhere he went, in England and America, this was in the 1700s, he would just preach, you must be born again. He loved passages like this one or like John 3. And once a lady came up to him and says, George Whitfield, why do you always preach to us that you must be born again? And he looked at her and he said, ma'am, it is because you must be born again. <laughs> you must be born again. You need to be born again. And it's not rocket science how it happens. This word is the good news that was preached to you. The message of Jesus, the Jesus we were just singing about, the Jesus we hear about every Sunday morning. Through faith in him, we enter real new life. Life with God that changes everything. Man, I hope that's true of you this morning. I hope you've bowed the knee to Jesus and you love him and he's changing your life. Second point of application. We've already kind of said this, but just consider again, the power of your new birth. If you have been born again through faith in this Jesus, his word has changed your life, and that's true not just of you, but of the person next to you, then you cannot hold that person under your uh, anger or hatred anymore. That option's not available to you. You've experienced new birth together. If I could get even a little bit more uncomfortable, let me do this. Push beyond for a moment the the borders of just this local church. How does this doctrine impact how you think about believers everywhere? How does it impact the way that you think about that church down the street that's just a little bit too charismatic or just a little bit too conservative or they're just a little bit unlike us? If they have really trusted in the true gospel. I'm talking about churches that have faith in the real Jesus of the Bible. But if they've trusted in that Jesus, even if their practice seems abhorrent to us and their doctrine is questionable and we scratch our heads, we owe it to these people to say, I love you. 
We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We've, we've experienced the new birth together. The life of Jesus that is living out through my life, it's living out through yours too. I cannot hold you in hatred. I, I can't hold you in derision. I can't look down my nose at you. Isn't it funny how every local church has it right? You know, it's just true. Every local church, at least from their own perspective, they're the ones that get it right. And everybody who is on either side of where they've landed, they're missing things. But in Christ, we can't think that way. There are believers around us in this city, in this state, all around the world. Their practice might look different than ours, but if they've experienced a new life together, we will inherit eternity with them. We will be with them someday in two billion years. Maybe like growing coffee together in the new heavens and the new earth or whatever we'll be doing. They have the same inheritance that we do. And so we love them. Putting it all uh, together, just from this first question, uh, we can say that love always flows out of this understanding that we are people who've been born again. The New Testament never holds out to us Nike love. This isn't just do it. This isn't just work a little harder, conjure up love inside of yourself. Nope, that's not how it goes. It calls us instead to remember again and again and again who we really are and then to live in line with that. Remember that you're somebody whose soul has already been purified. Remember that you're somebody who's been born again. Remember that this has happened to you through the powerful word of Jesus. And so out of that, live in line with who you really are. If you could humor me, let's, let's talk about two illustrations from popular culture, and then we're going to move on to our next question. Just two illustrations. The first is from the movie The Born Identity. Uh, not sure if you're an action movie person, but if you are, maybe you remember the movie, and it, it centers, the plot is all around this guy. He's a secret agent, but he has total personal amnesia. He's completely forgotten who he really was, and he gets into all kinds of trouble in this movie because he just doesn't know who he was, I just want to say, as Christians, we can't, we can't live like that. When we forget who we are, we descend into all kinds of behaviors and patterns that characterize the old person. We need to go back to God's word to be reminded of who we really are. That's a pretty simple one. Second one, this one's a little bit more interesting. I'm going to quote from the theologian's uh, One Direction. If you're a later uh, teenage girl, maybe this one will speak to you. If you don't know who One Direction are, you're not missing out on much, but they're a, a boy band. They have a song, and it's, he, the, the singer is speaking to a girl, and I'm really surprised I'm going to say this in a sermon, but I thought about it, I prayed about it, I'm going for it. Uh, this, the song says, he says this girl, you don't know, uh-uh, you don't know you're beautiful. You don't know you're beautiful. Uh, that's my big illustration. I think many Christians, many Christians, they either don't know or they've forgotten how beautiful they are. What Jesus has made them to be. I mean, look at us. We're just a normal group of people. It'd be easy to forget, but, but we need to remember what the Bible tells us. We share in this new life. We're the people who belong to Jesus. If we don't know what he's made us, or if we've forgotten, or if that's become kind of a distant reality to us, then we're going to go back almost to living just as we may have without Jesus. But if we remember what he's made us, it fuels and informs a passion to love one another. And we want to do that. That was the first question. Where does love come from? And I'll go much faster through the second. The second question is now just this. How can I grow in love? If love is rooted in my new birth in Christ, and I want to grow, I want to have more love towards others, how does that happen? How do I grow in love? 
And the answer is this, love flourishes as we taste Jesus' goodness in the word of God. Love flourishes as we taste Jesus' goodness in the word of God. Let's look at where Peter goes in the text. In verse uh, one of chapter two, he says this, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Verse two, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Just a few things to point out here. Uh, first, we may think that the main imperative or the main command in this section is, so put away all of these evil things. But actually, it's really not. It's long in the second verse. Long for the milk of the word. So th- th- we'll talk about this in a moment, but, but basically the dynamic here is Peter says, here's your life. You've been born again and you love out of that. So be putting away all of these things as you long for something. And what is it that you long for? He says you are to long for the pure milk of the word. So in a moment, we'll get to that. But first, just with me, think for a moment about these things that he's calling us to put away. Uh, He says put away, and then he lists five attributes or behaviors, ways of thinking that characterize the old person. This word for put away, it would have, to the first hearers, it would have made them think of how the the word that they would use to, to put off or take off a certain set of clothes. So he's saying to them basically, hey, if you're in Christ, there is a certain wardrobe that you are not supposed to be wearing anymore. That, that, that's not a comment about modesty. I'm working with the illustration here. If you're in Christ, there are kinds of clothes that are no longer appropriate for the occasion. If I had shown up this morning to preach wearing a bathing suit, that would not be appropriate for the occasion. There are certain things that are no longer appropriate in a given situation. And he says, it's time for you to put off certain things behaviors. I had planned to actually work through each of these individually, and I'm going to move past that just for the sake of time. But he says, basically, there are things that you cannot do anymore, clothes that you cannot wear if you've been born again, and they're these. Malice. That's just the general ill will. Malice, he says, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander. Instead of individually looking at these, I just want to say this. The reason he specifies with this list of five is because all of these are love killers. They are love destroyers. These are the kind of things that eat a church from the inside out. And we won't talk about each of them individually, actually. But you can just imagine how each of these individually, malice and then deceit, hypocrisy, living in a way as though you're better than everybody else, and envy, envying that somebody else gets to play the role that you don't, slander, speaking poorly of people, all these things are love killers. And so it's time to take off those clothes, he says. It's time to put those things away. And instead, we are supposed to be people who long, who hunger. He says that we are to be like newborn infants longing for the pure spiritual milk. And he's speaking there of the word of God that he's just been talking about, the pure milk of the word of God so that by it we may grow up into salvation. So I'm a new father. Um, I have a little girl who's five months old. Her name is Isla Noel. She's beautiful. And I can really relate right now to this illustration because, because this little baby girl, she pretty much wants like one thing in life. And it's, it's that she gets milk. I'll give you a quick illustration. Uh, 
on Thursday night this week, my wife and I, we were going to actually go up to the Pantages to see a show, Lion King. It was awesome. And, uh, and we had, it was like, you would have thought that it was a, you know, like a war room council, a strategy session, trying to figure out how we were going to get this little girl enough, like, milk to make it through the night, because she wasn't coming with us. So we're, like, strategizing, how's this going to work, and how are we going to make sure that she gets topped off before we walk into this show? And, you know, she only wants one thing. She's like, I need that. And nothing else is going to fit the bill. We just tried to start feeding her bananas and avocados, and you should just see her face. You know, the little mushed up things. She's like, nah, this is not what I want. I want that stuff that I've been on for the last five months. The illustration is so simple, but it's so powerful. Peter says, if we're going to be a people who grow up into the kind of love that should characterize us, we have to long for the word of God. We have to long specifically for what he's just said. The word was the good news that was preached to us, the message of Jesus. We need to be people who long to see it in the word of God. And if that's happening, he says, we'll be growing up into salvation. The idea isn't that by our obedience or our growth in love, we're in some way earning or contributing to salvation. He's saying, no, 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 you're already people have been saved and you're awaiting a final salvation and as you long for the word of God and it transforms your life you are increasingly growing up into what you already are just like a little son who is maybe growing up to look more and more like the dad whose genes he already carries you're growing up to look more and more like what you really are and it makes sense doesn't it you're born again by the word of God and then it continues to provide nourishment for your new spiritual life as you follow Christ. And yet this is hard. This is challenging. Some of us, maybe we could say, you know, generally by God's grace, I am hungry for the word of God. But for many of us, we find it challenging. We struggle to have regular quiet times or devotional routines, maybe in the sermon each week where we just barely trying to stay awake and stick with the pastor. It's hard to be hungry for the word of God in this way. And so Peter actually closes this section of his book with a final little, kind of a final parting shot that gives us lots to think about and helps us to understand as well why we may have so little desire for God's word. And the parting shot is this, quoting from Psalm 34, he, he just adds, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And his point is this, no taste, no longing. No tasting that God is good, no longing for his word. And so a question for us this morning as we're coming towards a close would just be this. Have you tasted it? Have you tasted the kindness of Jesus in God's word? Or is it just ideas to you? If it's just ideas, then you're not going to be hungry for the word of God. Somebody brought up Chick-fil-A this morning and it made me think of, you know those billboards that you drive by? I love these billboards. Chick-fil-A marketing people, they've got it right. It's these big cows and they're painting signs on the billboard, eat more chicken, you know? If you've never had Chick-fil-A, that might not be all that compelling to you, you know? It's just, oh, okay, there's a restaurant that's advertising, but wait a second, if you've tasted it, all of a sudden you're like, where do I pull off? I'm going there right now to get some chicken McMinnies, you know? Uh, the taste makes all the difference. Have you tasted it? If you've tasted it, there's a hunger for it. And some of us this morning have never tasted it. It's all just an idea. It's all just a cultural thing. I show up to church because that's what you do. But you've never tasted the kindness of Jesus. And so the invitation from Peter would just be, come and sit down at the feast 
Come and trust in Jesus. Give your life to him. Pray that God would open your eyes so that you'd see how glorious he is for the first time. Give your life to him. And secondly, maybe some of us, we really do know Jesus, but it's been a long time since we've tasted. And we've maybe let the, the flavor grow stale. And so there's opportunity this morning to say, I want to, by God's grace, go back again to the word of God. I want to taste it. I want to see how good Jesus is. And by that, I'm going to grow up into salvation. Do you notice how the dynamic works? This is so important. If we long for love, greater love, we'll ultimately be frustrated oftentimes because in our longing, we'll turn inward and it will be a self-generated love that we pursue. But if we remember our new birth and we long for Jesus in the word of God, love begins to grow as a byproduct of our focus on him. And that's a really key dynamic to understand. So to wrap things up this morning, let's review again some of what we've seen, then a final illustration and we're done. Love is rooted in our new birth in Christ and it flourishes as we taste his goodness in the word of God. In response to the first question, where does love come from? We saw that it's rooted in that new birth that's come by the power of God's word. We are new people with new affections, new love for God and each other, and so we love. It is completely unacceptable for believers to continue in anger and hatred towards one another because we share in the same new birth. And then in response to the second question, how do I grow in love? We said, long to see Jesus in the word. Develop the taste. Be hungry to know him. And as you drink in more of that spiritual milk, as you eat that food, as Jesus is your life, love begins to grow up all around you in your life as a byproduct of that focus. Final illustration. How do you grow in love? Um, when I was growing up, I used to love to go to Wild Rivers, the theme park, you know, or really, I don't know if theme park is the right word, but water slides and that kind of thing. And one of the attractions was something called the Lazy River. And it was this long, winding kind of pool where all the water flowed in a certain direction. And my friends and I, one of our, probably our favorite thing to do at Wild Rivers was to race in the Lazy River. And we always needed to avoid the lifeguards who were yelling at us not to run, you know, but, but we would get in that river, and even as it's carrying you along, we would just start to race as fast as we could, trying to get around this whole circle in the, in the shortest amount of time, who would win, all these kind of things. And I think that, you know, it's not a perfect analogy, but it indicates to us something of what it might look like to chase after this kind of love. We're already being carried along by Jesus' own life in us towards a life of love. We've already been born again. We already have new life. This is already happening. And yet, there's still responsibility for us to chase after Jesus, to desire to know him more, to see more of his love, and to think about how that would inform things for me, change my life. How would it rebuke some of my selfishness? That's the chasing. That's the running. So even as Jesus carries us along, we are in hot pursuit as well because we want to grow to be the people that Jesus has called us and made us to be.